This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to the Double X Gab Fest for Thursday, July 27th, the Sex Robots Are Coming edition. I'm Hannah Rosen, a host of NPR's Invisibilia. In the New York studios, we have the lonely Noreen Malone of New York Magazine. Hi, Noreen. Hi, Hannah. It's so lonely here. <laughs> um, it's so lonely. June's uh, away. Noreen is lonely. Noreen is lonely because June is away. And so we have, because June is so great, three people to fill June's space. We're going to interview different people for every segment. I'll tell you who they are when we get to the segments, but they're all awesome and it will be fun. <laughs> it's like a big reveal. A big reveal. No, I mean, you know, they'll they'll mean more. They'll mean more okay. connected to their topics. Okay. But the guest I wish we had on instead of all of you is Tiffany Haddish from Girls Trip which yeah. Noreen and I both saw. Oh, my God. She's like the <laughs> funniest person. I, I spent, I, I was watching her on Jimmy, she's got a Jimmy, Jimmy, Jimmy Kimmel segment that you all have to watch. It is so funny where she tells the story of telling, of taking Will Smith and Jada Pinkett on a swamp ride. Oh, my God. It's, it's like, she's so funny. Yeah. Anyway. She's charismatic and she's having her big breakthrough and she's almost 40. So, like, don't give up on whatever it is you want to be doing if you're, you know, 25 and haven't done it. Oh, my God. I can't believe you just said that. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, like, 39 or something. But 25? People give up at 25? I think some people do. Yeah. Also, don't give up if you're 39 or 49. But Wow. I think it's kind of wow. cool that she's breaking through now. She's awesome in every way. And so uh, what are we talking about today? First, we are talking about sex robots are here. They've been here for a while, and now there's a new model that you can kind of rape. We discuss what that means for actual sex in the world. Uh, second, uh, why, when the history of music is written, are women left out of it or described as a trend? And finally, we talked to Laura Moser, who's once a writer for Slate, and she's now part of the post-Hillary army of regular women running for office. We're excited to talk to all of them. And then in our Slate Plus segment, we will discuss beer for women. Is that a lame sexist idea or is it exactly what we ladies at the bar need? If you're not yet a Slate Plus member, you should be. Go to slate.com slash xxplus to support us and the wonderful work that Slate does. And to hear our show ad-free, of course. Uh, so sex robots are here. They are improving every year in lifelikeness. But most of us don't know what they are, whether they, we should be freaked out by them. What do they mean? Do they bring out the best in us or the worst in us? And so here we have New York Magazine sex columnist Maureen O'Connor to help us figure it out. Hi, Maureen. Hi. So... Maureen kindly shared with us a video of sex robots, which we'll play a little bit of. So, Maureen, can you just describe a little bit what, like, what the what the robot that we're about to hear looks like, and kind of what the, what the scene is of this video, just to put it in people's heads. So, I think people are somewhat familiar with the idea of like real dolls or sex dolls that are the size of a woman, and they're made with silicone, and they're meant to sort of look as much like a real woman as is possible with silicone and an inanimate object, um, which is, you know, somewhat. Um, and so a handful of people are trying to add sort of animatronic elements to the faces primarily of these sex dolls so that their lips can move, so that their eyes can blink and move around. And in some cases, actually trying to use the equivalent of sort of a simplified version of Siri in inside of it so you can talk to it so that you know you speak and then the the doll something in the doll then talks back to you while its mouth is being animated and moving and in some cases some sex robots have you know equipment like a vagina that vibrates or you know different elements of the way they react to different things and different companies are sort of programming them differently all right let's hear for a second how the sex robot sounds so you can get a sense of how realistic it is i mean it's not even quite uncanny valley but you guys can decide for yourself 
And this is this is the sex robot that the man Matt McMullen, um, who designed real dolls. Um, this is him making his real dolls into a sex robot. Can you say hello to my friends? Hello, Matt's friends. It is very nice to meet you. I hope everything is well with you. What's your favorite movie? My favorite movie is Prometheus. Ex Machina, Forrest Gump. Interest, they're on no planet. So, Maureen, just like the very basics, where would you put these dolls in the uncanny? They don't, they're not like, like, I mean, they have some qualities of life, like their mm-hmm. eyes. He mentions their eyes in the video that they are trying very hard to make their eyes seem like mesmerizing is the word he uses. Um, but in general, where would you put it? on the on the scale of, you know, total robot to total woman. Like it's in the ex machina scale. <laughs> it's really pretty honestly, like using the word robot, like in a very technical sense of like the way your Roomba is a robot, yes, this is a robot. But I think it's not necessarily what people are imagining in that I still would say on the scale of sex to masturbation, this is an extraordinarily elaborate masturbation device. Um I don't think <laughs> it's it's a doll that can it's, it's the way I described it to Noreen actually was like a Teddy Ruxpin doll, but it's designed to have sex, like a <laughs> fleshlight plus a Teddy Ruxpin that it talks to you, it talks back to you, like when you interact with it. But it's not like you're having sex with a woman who can move or do anything. It's not responsive. It's not like it talks, but it looks like a doll talking. Like yeah. I don't think there is any level on which you would like really think that was a woman, right? But it's not like, in some ways, it's not a two-way sexual encounter, right? Like, it's not like uh, the robot is initiating anything. No, most people, like, um, to to get the technology so that it could, say, walk or move around, move its limbs, like, the technology definitely isn't there yet. It's Mm -hmm. extraordinarily difficult to do that. And I don't think anyone is actively working on that component yet. Which is was a surprise to me because when I've seen photo essays or even advertisements about sex robots, they always they look like they're just hanging out, you know, like the dude and the robot are just sitting on the couch having a glass of wine. Like that's one of the advertisements. (laughs) Or there's like a great photo essay about a guy and his relationship with his sex robot. And it's like takes you from room to room. I'll put the link on our on our um on our on our page but it's like you it's a beautiful photo essay and it you know the way they're advertised it's almost like you could fake yourself into a relationship with them plus they cost like seven thousand dollars so so you think between the cost and that like that they are a little more lifelike than they actually are yeah i mean you could you can move it around and prop it next to you on the sofa but um the primary actor is still the owner of the robot not the robot and what is the market for sex robots or sex dolls let's start with sex dolls and then sex robots i I assume sex robot market is just rich people who want (laughs) sex dolls it's a really niche industry that gets a lot of attention because it is very um intriguing to look at pictures of it and it is an extraordinary amount of money to spend for essentially masturbation um but like it's a, it's a really niche market. But the people who do make sex robots say that they have wait lists and have you know enough clientele that the rate at which they're able to make their robots, which is pretty slowly, um, they don't have like mass factories making these yet. It's like they're working on it. Um, so yeah, there are there are more people who want to buy them than are currently available. Hmm. Hmm. So why? So that but they do freak people out. Like the reason we're talking about this is because there was an article. Wasn't the New York Times? There was an article in the mm-hmm. New York Times, you know, about this new setting on one of these robots called, which is the frigid setting. Um, and the frigid setting is is essentially supposed to mimic resistance. Like the robot is supposed to be resisting you. So that sounds a little rapey, but it's more just like a rape fantasy. And so that kind of freaked people out. Like, are we moving? Is this just like the the next extension of violent porn? Are we like encouraging people in their fantasy life in a way which creates or normalizes a certain way of being with women? Um, so what do you what do you think about that? Like apocalyptic doomsday um, sex robot? I find. Um The thing that I sort of question about the New York Times op-ed in particular and a number of stories that have sort of all come out at once about whether sex robots are 
to putting placing a number of articles that are putting sort of sex robots in the context of the consent discussions of consent is that I think there's a really big leap to assume that somebody who wants to have a sex doll, what they really want is a woman who won't consent and they're allowed to have their way with her. Like, I think that's a pretty big leap. And I haven't seen anyone actually talking to people with sex robots and actually having them say that or understanding what do you do with your frigid setting robot? Do What does the frigid robot setting even actually say or do? For instance, the people who make the that robot claim it's not a rape fantasy. I don't know, but like we haven't like what does she actually say? What does she actually do? And I just think it's like a big leap to assume that people that want sex robots actually want to rape women and then to like go from there and have this elaborate debate about whether is this encouraging people to be too rapey? You know, are we giving them an outlet so that they won't rape people because they can rape robots? That just strikes me as like a big leap. The thing that that concerns me more about the training of a of a, you know, like if you're having sex with a sex robot, then what you are learning or craving or whatever is a woman who, who like doesn't really interact with you in a real human way, who just kind of like lies there and is literally a vessel for you, you know, that you control, that you're in charge of. That that is to me the more like difficult psychological hurdle of this. I think the question then is if that's what people actually want when they're getting a sex robot. And like, I am not totally convinced of mm-hmm. that. Like, I think that it's an extremely elaborate masturbation device. I'm not sure. There are plenty. I mean, I don't think that that necessarily means people with sex dolls don't also want fully complex humans to interact with in their mm-hmm. lives, too. OK, I have so many questions. So <laughs> so one one distinction here is like the fantasy life versus like, is it OK? Does it mean anything if your fantasy life includes everything that we just discussed, like mm-hmm. a woman who pleases you exactly how you want? Uh, oh, and, and there are male there's writing about male robots, too. So this is not exclusively the male female dynamic, but let's just say it is for the moment or, you know, even a kind of fantasy in which someone resists you, what do we think about that in a fantasy life? Does it necessarily mean anything? What if that's part of your fantasy life? Like you want a little space where the woman does exactly what you want. And then in the rest of your life, you're like, you know, a decent guy. Is that is that is that one of the possibilities you feel like if you talk to a lot of people who had these robots, that could come up? I mean, I think that's possible. I think I have, I think, perhaps greater faith than most people in um people's ability to discern fantasy from reality. And I think I just don't necessarily believe that someone fantasizing about something or even having some component of envisioning something in their minds when in their own like personal imaginative lives or whatnot is necessarily going to spill into their actual lives. Like I think everybody knows the difference. I mean, some people know the difference and still choose to do bad things. But I don't think that actually, I mean, to the extent that we worry about sex robots encouraging, you know, frigid Farah encouraging people to want to have sex with resisting women, that would be the same level that we worry about, say, porn that plays out non-consensual um, scenarios, but are also enacted by actors who we know are just acting or people right. who role play in their actual sex lives. And I don't think people that role play that way are necessarily people who want to rape. Or will do so. I mean, women's fantasies have been well studied and women's fantasies include a tremendous it's a majority of overpowering fantasies. That's it's not mm-hmm. necessarily like rape fantasies, but that's a huge thread in female fantasies. Like when they yeah, give absolutely. women choices of, you know, like read this story, read this story, which one would you choose? It's not like women choose snuggling. They don't, you know? <laughs> I guess I'm interested in why the market for this exists. Um, I, for for work reporting reasons, have been spending a lot of time thinking about the young men of 4chan and Reddit and this sort of and and there's this message board called Wizard Chan, which I just learned about, which is for adult male virgins. And I've come to them through like you know sort of right wing covering right wing politics and why this anger manifests itself in this way. But what I've been thinking about is a lot is like how much of this anger they have towards the world is about sexual rejection. Like it really is true that in some sense they feel like the sexual revolution, you know, created the sexual one percent and they are on the outside of it. And 
things like sex robots seem to me to be such a response to this feeling that like, okay, the women aren't going to let us in anymore. Like, this is what we're going to do. There's just this like alienation, this sense that, you know, the normal um, human assumption that they're, you know, everyone would sort of basically partner up is gone. And like, we're, we're all sort of figuring out what's left. And I think for a lot of young men, it's, it's becoming a really complicating psychological factor for them. And I, I, I can't help but see ro- sex robots as like an outcropping of that just because of how I've been thinking about the world lately. I do think we've started to think of sex as sort of like a basic human right or that everybody has the right to a sex life on some level. And I think that that then gets confused a bit because you say like I have, you know, my sexual desires, I'm allowed to have, you know, sexual desire. I'm allowed to manifest my fantasy life however I want. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to find a partner who wants to do that with you or that, you know, the the specific type of partner you're envisioning in your mind is actually going to exist. And I think when we see sort of elaborate ways of trying to fill that gap, it forces us to sort of look at, like you said, Noreen, just the gap between what people want and what reality can offer them. And I think it's upsetting to think that I think in in my mind I would like to imagine that when that gap exists when people can't find their fantasy partner that they want to be having sex with that they you know recalibrate their expectations they learn to be happy with other people because I mean that's the way I exist in the world it I like to imagine that and I think realizing that there are people whose fantasy lives could potentially be better fulfilled by a $10,000 Teddy Ruxpin fleshlight is just sort of confusing and upsetting. But I also think that it is entirely possible that somebody could want these elaborate masturbation devices and still interact with humans in a different, complex way. Um, but maybe I'm just like crazily optimistic. No, I, I like your note of optimism because I it, it, it's cutting through my doom and gloom in, in just the right way. It's good. In the way that I think when people masturbate, they're thinking about different things than when they're actually having sex. And I mean, most people when they have sex, even when we think about like the most sort of men who objectify women, you want people want to be desired when they're having sex. They want to be doing a good job at having sex. Like when I imagine sex with a sex doll, I it's more like masturbation basically than mm-hmm. I think the way people actually interact when they have sex. Yeah, and that's the sympathetic explanation like instead <laughs> of like these guys. No, it is like for the guys, like maybe like free me from the anxiety for a minute, you know? Just just give me a break from it. <clears throat> I mean, that's why right, you masturbate, right? <laughs> yeah, just, just Sometimes you don't want to have sex. Sometimes you want to masturbate. Yeah. For $10,000, once again. I just can't, can't get over Like, I just like forking over the $10,000, like making that decision. It seems extreme. All right, here's the last question then. Okay, the true answer to you, if, you, if you're going out with someone and they confess to you that they have a sex robot, are you okay with it? Is that a deal killer? Uh, the my, look on your face, Noreen. My visceral <laughs> reaction is like, no, I run in the other direction. <laughs> I think on a really basic level, it would bother me because how, where is it stored? Can you really <laughs> fall asleep knowing that there's a humanoid in the closet? I don't know. Oh my God. <laughs> hmm. Well, I think I might be okay if it was like in the closet, but not like the confessional of like, I sleep with it every night would freak me out. But What if your husband of 20 years came to you and was like, you know, I just think we're, we need to make a big household purchase. <laughs> It's really for both of us. What do you think if we got a sex robot? How would you, you react? know what I would say? I would be like, that is awesome, but it has to be a male sex robot. And then he'd be like, forget it, man. I wouldn't do it. So it's like an easy way to win that one. Yeah. Okay. Oh, boy. All right. Well, Maureen, that was awesome. I feel totally educated on the sex robots. If they're coming, I can handle it now. So thank you for that. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
All right, so our next segment, Ann Powers, music critic for NPR, has a great piece out this week asking why music made by women is recognized as part of a trend instead of something that has a lasting impact. Um, It's a great story, not just about music, but how male this idea of the list is, uh, her idea of the pseudo-generic man, which is pretty applicable, I think, across lots of different genres and places. Um, And then if you're into music, she also writes her own canon of the 150 best albums, by women. So we have Anne on the show today. Anne, welcome. Thank you for doing it. Thank you so much for having me on your wonderful woman-powered show. <laughs> woman-powered show. Um, I, I got, I have to say, like, I tweeted out the story and there was so much, like, woman power love that came back. <laughs> so it seemed like this article was born out of many years of covering music and noticing something. So can you talk about that? What was it, like, what was the pent-up frustration uh, that that, yeah. that caused you to finally sit down and do this, like, massive can- alternative canon project? Well, the 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 piece was actually born out of um, a conversation, as so many uh, feminist projects are, out of a conversation between two women, myself and Jill Sternheimer, who is the director of public programs at Lincoln Center. We were in New Orleans at a festival. Uh, we had just seen, uh, I, th- I believe it was Barbara Lynn, the, the great electric guitarist, um, perform, and we started talking about how... Um, women as they age in popular music are their reputations unlike men's reputations often diminish rather than increase. Um, even the greats, you don't see Aretha Franklin getting the Nobel Prize. I think that is a mistake. So um, we started saying, how can we honor our elders? And that morphed into how can we correct the problem of how popular music history is told? And that led to this idea of the list, which was voted upon by women throughout the NPR system. So it's not just my list. It's actually a list that um, was voted on by people like Audie Cornish, for example, and Netta Ulubi, and like lots of your favorite NPR personalities. That is why the list is so wonderfully diverse as well in every way, age, style, genre, everything. One of my favorite parts of your essay is when you talk about this idea that men do and women be. And as it applies to music, it's like, okay, like, we're going to break down what it is the Beatles did that changed, you know, rock and roll forever. And but Aretha Franklin's voice is just like the voice of God, you know, or like Joni Mitchell is just this angel who happens to have this talent. And that was really clarifying for me. Thank you. Um, Yeah, it's I don't know, Hannah, did you ever, like, hang out in the women's studies department at your college? (laughs) So I was a women's studies baby, and uh, some things I learned uh, in those classes was this idea that, that, you know, men are creators and and movers and shakers, and women are presences, you know? Even from the way the cliches about how we think about dad and mom, right? Dad works, goes off to the office... Mom waits at home, creating a space simply by her wonderful presence. Now, these are very old-fashioned ideas, and maybe we don't relate to them in our daily lives, but they still pervade our perceptions of the arts, of popular culture, as, as all society. And, um, and that's what I noticed. Like when you say, and it's not like women don't win awards. It's not like you know individual women aren't rewarded, but it's just the way we tend to talk about uh, men and women, and particularly uh, why albums, things that are made, those tend to be the ones that tend to be celebrated are are made by men. You know, an interesting thing that I had kind of overlooked in my many years of listening to Joni Mitchell's Blue is that she produced that album. Not only did she sing on it, play most of the instruments, write all the songs, but she actually produced it. And you know. I think we need to celebrate the fact that she commanded a room, you know, that included people like James Taylor and Stephen Stills and produced, created, made an indelible work of art. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, so the the other concept I love was the pseudo generic man. Can you talk about that? Like what that means <laughs> and how that's applicable in lots of different places. Well, the pseudo generic man is something that every rock fan particularly struggled with. Uh, it's changing, I'm happy to say, because we're hearing more kind of conscious uh, protests against it, especially in like an indie rock and stuff. But that idea is um, is that 
the character in any given narrative is, is male if the gender's not named, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, a classic example would be, I can't get no satisfaction in the Rolling Stones song. Like, the idea of who can't get no satisfaction, it's voiced by Mick Jagger and it feels male, right? Like, what, what happens when a woman expresses that, that same sentiment, you know, like, I mean, basically, like Joni Mitchell in All I Want is expressing the very same sentiment. But we think of uh, those basic sentiments expressed through music as being expressed by men. So that, it, because of that idea, women always seem like an exception. They're not the center. They're not expressing the central emotion. They're expressing this kind of extra emotion, you know. Oh, well, that's just for women. Only women feel that way. And one reason to do a canon... I mean, you know, the, the list has received some criticism, like, well, isn't this reverse sexism? Why are you being exclusive? I don't know. I, I, I started to think, well, maybe we need an absolute corrective where every story told in music is told in the voice of a woman, and only through that will we be able to hear that universal stories and women's stories are the same thing. Yeah, see, I went through I went through that debate myself in my head when I as I was reading through your list because my mm-hmm. initial response to the list was not that it was reverse sexism, but that it was like another form of ghettoizing. It's like it's just right. like it makes a sort of woman trend thing. It's like this side right. sort of like our podcast. Like, why do I need a separate podcast? Aren't I in in the very act of doing this podcast, like ghettoing women's issues into sort of like a teeny tiny separate thing that is not the main thing? But then. Some Somehow the fact that you like pushed on through to 150, like that you had, you did this like just so in such a ballsy, like complete and thorough way with these huge long explanations that I was like, right. oh, now it just feels like the list. Like by the time I got to the end of it, I was like, oh, it's just, it's so much and it's so overwhelming that it didn't feel, and it's also different genres and there's like Amy Winehouse and Aretha Franklin and Carol King and... Beyonce, right. and by and, the end of it, you're just like women. Just are all over like the musical <laughs> canon, you know. And there's and there's so much more to do. And what's so thrilling is that it's happening. Like already, the Fader did a list of 150 more women who weren't included. And Kim Kelly, who's this uh, heavy metal writer for Noisy, did a list of 150 women albums made by women in metal. And you know, there's one being crowdsourced. Uh, um, a classical one I hear is happening and, and see that is, I just, I wanted it to be a ball rolling, rolling down that hill, uh, that would, that this would happen exactly this, that we would start to see that popular music, you, you know, it, it, I think as I also said in the essay, it's like, it's not an alternative history. It is the history. <laughs> you know? right. And, and, you know, not to say Bob Dylan didn't do a few good songs or whatever, you know, but, what if we said it this other way you know that's all I'm saying can I just tell you how fun it was for me to read this um I've (laughs) I no genuinely I I've you know I I love music I care about music but I've never gotten into the sort of like pissing contest of like here are my top 10 albums for the year or whatever um which I do see you know friends doing in their Facebook feed, mostly men, not exclusively men, but I just, you know, I've never felt drawn to that. Whenever Pitchfork or whatever comes up with a list, I kind of look at it. But I felt so much more connected to so many albums on this list. And that was really exciting for me to realize that, like, I got super excited to see how high I listened to Williams was or, like, that Beyonce was in the top 10. And I, you know, I was, like, thrilled that this Iris DeMent album that I love popped up on the list. Like, it just, I realized, or, like, even this random Macy Gray album that I never would have thought of as being, you know, like this work of canon. It was like in some way validating to see that other women really or other people really love that album in the way that I did. Um, it just was like I, I it made me realize that my musical tastes maybe do skew uh, female. And it, it really felt validating to see them recognized as um, great. I've been getting some great responses from people along those lines. Like, you know, one woman tweeted that, Growing up, she had loved Janis Joplin, and all the guys around her made fun of her for loving Janis Joplin. And now that Janis is on the list, I think she's at eight, um, you know, made her cry. And uh, absolutely, and the, and the artists you mentioned, I mean, they could make any list of any kind. They're all deserving, mm-hmm. you know. But that that identification and emotion, I'm really feeling that from a lot of um, people receiving the list. And I think that's partly because um, the voters 
you know, that motivated them too. And I don't, again, I don't mean to make a binary split. Women think and feel. <laughs> they don't think or feel. But, but allowing for your hierarchies to be created in part by your heart, you know, in part by your intuition and your emotion, as well as by your intellect and your judgment of mastery, I think is a lesson um, that maybe this can teach us. Mm-hmm. So I have a question for both of you. Is there something male about the list, like just the fact of having a list? <laughs> you know, is the fact of making a list like, is, is it like a show? Are we doing like a lean in thing where we're like, we're going to do it like the guys do it, but only better? Because I did notice when I tweeted it out, the men started quibbling with the list. It's like, well, I think right. Lucinda Williams should be blah, blah. <laughs> like they got all listy, you know, and mansplaining <laughs> to the like, max. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just very like, but the list is wrong. You know, it's a good list, but it's wrong. You know, so so I just wonder, like, is is the because I feel like you, Noreen, I can never really like get all worked up about a list. But it is so important, right? Like canon making is is like how you define, you know, the boundaries of of the art of the of like the nation of, of all of this. And uh even maybe it's male in in the way that like wanting to dominate anything you could argue is this like you know testosterone driven uh way of seeing the world but uh i don't think we should let that stop us well maybe it's the difference between wanting to dominate and wanting to share you know there's that um that story that i include in my essay uh i think it's susan gubar talking about how did the um how did 19th century novels by women um, joined into a canon, and it's because women were sharing them with each other, you know? They were saying, have you read Jane Austen, you know? Are you into the Brontes? And 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 there's a feeling of, of it's more of a circular feeling, to use some very cliched feminist language. I mean, my dream for this list, and we didn't, we weren't able to technologically do it, would be that we could publish it in such a way that it would be almost like a game, and you could rearrange it, re-rank it yourself, you know, and mm. move things around. And I, I mean, I hope that's what people do. Like challenge, go ahead and challenge uh, our, our rankings, our inclusions, our exclusions, and, and, and let this be the conversation because that's really what it's about, not about I have the amazing knowledge and I know that because of the way that she tuned her dulcimer, Joni Mitchell is the most superior artist. You know, that's not what I'm aiming for. (laughs) I'm aiming for learning and sharing. Yeah, and the fact that you crowdsourced the list, I think, was part of that spirit. Like, maybe you couldn't get the whole technological thing, but that was part of it. And I will say, you convinced me, like, I've read a lot of stories of, like, you know, why aren't women included in this? But but because you created this list, it kind of, I understand now, I'm not so resistant to what listing is for. It's like what Noreen said. It's for history. Like, it's for creating the canon. If you don't do it, and you don't kind of, like, put it on the tombstone like that, it just gets forgotten as this kind of ghostly presence. So in some ways, this is the way to do it. It's, I think you're right. You know, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, uh, the Grammys, you know, the Grammys tend to be more gender balanced, but um, Rolling Stones lists, you know, nothing against Rolling Stones. They've done so much great work and they're so important, but those lists tend, you know, they do tend to shut out a lot of what we included. And, and some of it has to do with, Artists who aren't, you know, quote unquote, taken seriously. I, Alanis Morissette is a great example. You know, that album really matters. It really matters to people. And it would, you know, a lot of critics or whatever are like, eh, you know, <laughs> thank God that's in the past. Check <laughs> a little pill. But, um, you know, when I returned to listen to it, I thought it sounded a lot more raw and real than I did at the time because I had prejudices against her. She was a teenage girl. She seemed to, you know, have been manufactured by the pop industry, and she seemed silly. But now I can hear all the power in what she did. So even I am susceptible to dismissing these artists, <laughs> you know. So that's why they need a second listen. Yeah, the one for me was Missy Elliott. I was so glad she ended up in the top 10. Yeah. I always had a like, you know, was I allowed to feel about that Missy Elliott album the way I actually feel about that Missy Elliott album? So I'm really (laughs) glad that that one ended up there. That was awesome. You are allowed. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Stay proud. We will end on that. You're allowed. Stay proud. Thank you, Anne. Everyone should check out the list, mess with it, complain about it. Tweet Anne at Anne K. Powers. Just, just like, just bring on the kind of love and debate over the 150 greatest albums made by women. Anne, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Okay.
Our next topic, Laura Moser, who was once a writer for Slate, is now running for office in Houston. Laura is part of a trend of women who previously had no political ambitions, but who are just going for it. Hi, Laura. Welcome to the show. Hi, Hannah. Great to be here. So congratulations. And uh, I, I, I was sitting in an airplane. I knew you were running vaguely. And then I saw this profile of you in Vogue. And I was like, oh, my God. It, like, it made it real for me that someone I know and have edited is actually running for office. It's a crazy thing to think about. Yeah, I'm not sure it's quite real to me yet. But here I am doing it. I don't really have a lot of time to think about it. I'm just kind of constantly in motion. Well, so tell us about what you're running for and how you decided to do it. Sure. Um, so I'm running for the 7th Congressional District in Texas. Um, it's it's central to Western Houston, very gerrymandered like most uh, Texas congressional seats. Uh, I, I started an organization after the election. You know, I'm sure, as I'm sure you know, my husband worked for the Obama administration. I moved to Washington the week Obama was inaugurated have observed politics very closely for many years, but never really felt at all the desire to be involved. In fact, the longer I was in Washington, the less involved I wanted to be. But, you know, lots of things changed on, you know, about midnight on November 8th. So um, I started an organization about three weeks after the election called Daily Action, which I just I just sort of wanted to do more, but I couldn't quit working or quit picking up my kids at school or go to protests every day, much as I wanted to. So it was sort of a activism made easy idea where you basically, I sent people one text message a day with a quick little action they could take, mostly calling, um, you know, their elected representatives about whatever horrible thing was happening that day. And I, I anyway, so I guess I wanted to do more. Um, I was in Houston, my homeland, for a Planned Parenthood luncheon on Valentine's Day, and it was just this really powerful experience. Like, women in Texas are under assault, have been under assault for a long time, and and I just kind of wanted to join the Army. Yeah, And I also knew everyone in the room, and I realized how connected I still am to this place because I'm here all the time, and even though I'd been in Washington. And I just, um, people had been asking me, if I could run, because this this is one of those seats, I should add, that Hillary won, but that stayed very, very um, red in Congress. The incumbent is is very extreme. You know, he's not he's not just like a regular Charlie Dent, moderate East Coast Republican. He's he's like the real deal Tea hmm. Partier. Um, so it's time. You know, the district's changed a lot. It's um, George H. W. Bush's old seat. But it's never, you know, we haven't elected a Democrat here for 60 years since it was redistricted in the 60s. Um, But the times they are changing. And what was your what you know, a lot of times they say, like, women have to be called to run or some of the story they always tell is like someone has to, you know, ask them to run. Like, what were you I'm curious about what in you like in you was resisting? Were you like, oh, my God, this is arrogant. Oh, my God. Was it the kids? Like, like, what was the, you know, because it's it's like men will be like, yeah, I did this thing and now I'm running for office. Like, you know, I started this business and that means I'm going to run for office. Yes. Now that I'm actually in this, the truth of that is very uh, powerful. I mean, I actually tried to recruit other people to run for months, you know, right after the election. I thought, okay, this is an opportunity. I called people, people I knew from here who had grown up here. And yeah, I don't know. I just, uh, there was something, you know, I like talking. I never, it was the kids. It was my husband's work. It was my work. It was just the fact that I don't really enjoy public speaking. Um, and, and, and it just re- requires a whole kind of reconceptualization of you and the world to consider yourself a person who could do something like this. Can you, what do you mean by that? You're like a part, like, what were you doing before? I mean, besides Daily Action, like, what was your life, say, when you were living in Washington? Well, I mean, I wrote, I wrote stories. I did various projects. And then I picked my kids up at 3.30 every day. You know, I had a very kind of quiet, regular life, which I enjoyed. Um, But, you know, I mean, that's, yeah, that was my life. And it it worked for us. Um, But being out in the public arena, I guess, is really, I'm not, you know, some things people say about women running for politics is that people will say horrible things about you. But as anyone, you know, as y'all know, from writing anything, people say crazy things about everything. And it has, it's not necessarily personal. So that part didn't bother me as much. Um, It was just thinking of myself as someone who could, 
you know, do something really hard and really public. But it's definitely, it's definitely, if my being a woman is not a side issue, both to the decision mm-hmm. and to the process that I'm, you know, going through right now. Well, and the decision, you say that it's, it's you know, um, not being a, that being a woman was not a side issue. I'm so interested in, in why so many women seem to have had that reaction to this election. It's like the, you know, the Tea Party wave of seven years ago or whatever, but very specifically to women where for the first time people feel called, I guess, to, to run for office. Is that because you looked at the Democratic bench and felt that your interests as a woman weren't being represented? Is it like a... No, I think it's because the pres. I, th- I think it's because we as Americans and as women like elected, you know, a serial sexual assaulter to the mm-hmm. highest office in the land. I mean, I think it really is as simple as that for many mm-hmm. of us. That like I heard the promo about sex robots and I thought, well, that that could help someone, you know, I won't say, um, you know, <laughs> just that there's someone um, there's like our president does not like think women are anywhere. You know, I mean, I can't even go there. But the um, Access Hollywood thing for me, my husband works in politics, too, and he was on the cam. I mean, he was on the campaign trail um, with Bernie Sanders for a lot of last year. And he, he would say to me, like, you don't understand you're not in America. Donald Trump is going to win this election, you know, mm-hmm. after the primary, you know, he said, you don't understand what people are talking about, what just, what, what the mood is out there. And then, and he's kind of always been right about his predictions to a troubling degree. So I was like, whatever, he's crazy. And then the access Hollywood thing happened. And he said, okay, I, I, you know, I underestimate America. Hillary Clinton's going to win. Like, no, this is too much. And then Hillary Clinton didn't win. And for me, I mean, I was kind of giddy after the Access Hollywood tape because I thought, thank God, there's finally like the smoking gun that yeah. will make America wake up. And kind of the opposite happened. So, you know, the only way we're going to change who gets elected is by putting ourselves into the ring. And I, I guess just having and people still like him and he just doesn't like women at all. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess that and doesn't even pretend to. So that that was kind of the catalyzing incident for me. Not not the actual tape, but when he was elected in the wake of the tape right? by women. Right. That makes sense. You know. It's funny. As you're talking, like, I'm thinking of entirely the wrong um, analogy, but I'm sorry for this. But, like, in the 90s when the super conservative women ran and they, like, packaged, they were like, we are just regular women and this country is being taken over. You know, it was totally from the right. opposite side of the political spectrum. And those people are still in office. To some, I mean, there's still some of them around. You know, yeah. And have you been part of any of these programs to train women to run for the first time? Like, what's been your your sort of like boot camp for becoming a politician? You know, I have not because I haven't had because I'm too busy. You know, running. <laughs> yeah, um, I haven't. I would like to. There are, you know, Emily's list has been great, but they have so many. Um, I guess they had 900 people approach them in the last election cycle, and now it's up to 15,000, and they haven't. You know, their 15,000. Yes. And I don't know if all of them will actually get on the ballot and run, but there's definitely that many women interested. And again, I would trace it all back to the same cause. But um, but yeah, so there hasn't I haven't done any um, I'm I'm really making it up as I go along. But now I have staff and they actually know what they're doing. Is there ever moments or things that you do where you're like channeling like, oh, this is how a guy would do it, like fundraising calls or anything like that? Or have you figured out kind of your own way of doing these things that seemed previously kind of crazy and outside your being to you? Um, Yes. Well, fundraising has been really, I mean, the fundraising calls, I, I hired a finance person about a week before the June deadline. And I would call people and say, hi, my name is Laura Moser, either you know, I got your name, whatever, and here's who I am. And and then um, I wouldn't ask for money. And she'd be like, you have to ask for money. That's the whole point of the call <laughs> after I'd hang up. And I'd say, well, why would someone give me money? They don't know me, you know. Um, and she'd say, because that's what you do. And, and you know, they should give you money because you're the best candidate, right? And I'd say, well, of course. But then I wouldn't ask for money. And then we actually, I actually had sort of a forum with all the other candidates who are all great. I mean, there's seven candidates in my primary, but um, I felt that I did very well in, in this forum. And it kind of made it feel real to me. Like, Oh, I'm not running against Barack Obama. You know, we're all first time candidates. Um, and I'm just as good, if not better than the other ones. So there, and so then after that, I had more, um, I've had more kind of pep in my step in the fundraising calls and I've 
made more money from strangers because of that. But I definitely needed like, it's, it's not like I woke up with the, or, or was born with this innate conviction that because taking people's money is, is hard. It's money, you know, people earn it and work for it. And, um, I don't know. I felt strange just asking people for, you know, and for example, you can give 2,700 in the primary and 2,700 in the general, and you're supposed to ask for 5,400 or 10,800 a couple. And I'm like, you can buy a car for $10,000. Why would I ask? That's an obnoxious <laughs> amount of money to ask for someone, you know, but, um, the men, let's just say, do not have the same hesitation. Um, so now mm-hmm. I'm getting a little more confident and just saying, you know, you should invest in me because I'm the one who can win. And I, I believe that now, but I didn't really believe it until I was in, in front of everyone. That's so awesome. I feel like it would be good for every woman in the world to make fundraising calls <laughs> because if you make enough of them, you get over your hesitation about money, self-worth. That's exactly what it is. It's like, I'm not worth a thousand dollars. You could buy like, you know, you could go on a spa weekend for that much, but then it actually is more important to spend money on flipping Congress if you have the resources. So I have gotten better. And it probably also gets you used to the idea that you are in, you're playing a public role. So you're not like asking money for Laura Moser, you're asking money for Laura Moser, the candidate. And like, so it makes, it helps you to see yourself like in this new role, you know, it's not just like a dirty little thing you have to do. It's actually accomplishing something for your, you know, journey path of of running for office. That's great. All right. Well, the last thing, uh, what, so so some of our listeners may know people, maybe thinking themselves of running. What would you say, like, what, what is the key question you ask yourself? Because it's not like you want the world flooded with people who are just like, I'm the way, you know, I'm just going to go to the march and then I'm going to run for office. Like there's actually probably some some ways in which you can tell for yourself whether this is a serious, serious, actual desire, ambition, or whether it's just like you're being, you know, rolled along on a wave of enth- of, of enthusiasm and disgust. I mean, I think it's okay to be, I actually think it's okay to be rolled along on a wave of enthusiasm and disgust and see um, where you end up. It might not be in a congressional race. It might be in a school board race. I, I actually think that, um, I mean, you can't have, you can't work full time and do this. I will say that. So that's definitely um, a part of the um, formula, but I I actually think it's fine. If you're, I I always say like activism is a gateway drug. You march and then you want to do the next thing. And even if I wasn't fully prepared, I had no idea how much, you know, one of my good friends in DC worked on a congressional campaign in Connecticut and was like, are you prepared to spend four hours a night calling strangers? And I was like, I love talking to people. That sounds really fun. And I had no idea what, actually four hours on the phone with people who don't want to talk to you or maybe they do, but you know, will then grill you about like the intricacies of the healthcare bill. Um, what that actually meant, like four hours is a lot of time. And then you also have to do, you have to prepare your policy positions and there's a lot of logistics and you can't really imagine how many there are until you're kind of inside the whale, but just do it, you know, and you'll, you won't have time to regret it because you'll be so busy. So I think just jump in. Like, there's no, you know, if you feel like you can, try it. Um, well, Laura, good luck. Everybody give Laura lots of money because she needs it, and she's an yeah, awesome Moser, candidate. Yeah, Moser for Congress.com. $5. Moser <laughs> for Congress. Excellent. Know, um, Laura, thank you so much for coming on the show. Good luck. Thank you all so much. All right, let's move on to our recommendations. Uh, Before I ask you, Noreen, I want you all to be aware of I Have to Ask, Isaac Chatner's interview show for Slate. It's a fabulous show, uh, and he interviews lots of great women guests, including Lydia Polgreen and Zoe Heller. uh, And he's just got an amazing style of interview. He's been writing Q&As forever, and they've always been great. Uh, So you should check out his show, I Have to Ask. Noreen, what do you have for us? Well, I was going to recommend Girls Trip, which is, if you didn't hear us at the top of the show, just a great time at the movies. Um, but since you stole that, I will uh, do two recommendations, actually. Um, one of which was inspired by Anne's List, um, number 142 on the 150 Greatest Albums by Women is uh, My Life by Iris Dement. And I can't remember if I've actually ever recommended Iris Dement on here before, Um, but she's kind of like a country folk singer and she has this really... Her voice is this really special quality. It's it's I don't know how to describe it. It's almost like between registers. And um, she is... 
it's like it's definitely music to cry by right like it's really sad and dark americana and i love it so much and i was like so thrilled to see it on the list and, and went um, into an Iris Dement hole last night, which actually didn't put me in a bad mood because I like her so much. Um, I feel like I'm going to walk down, I have to say, like a, a hole with this list. Like uh-huh. I'm just going to download it and have it every summer and then like like for the rest of the summer and just every mood I'm in, just pick the right album for that mood. I, I think I'm going to play with this list for a while, you know? Yeah. And there's and there's a lot to discover on it. There's a lot that I didn't know, actually. Um And then the other thing, we talked about this last year as a topic, uh, but Insecure on HBO, I have really, I really loved the end of last season. I felt like it got better as it went along. And um, I cheated and watched a few episodes early via a press screener for this season. I think it gets even better. And so if you haven't been watching, I think you should give it a try. There was an article in Wired that helped me clarify one of the things that I love about it, um, which is that even though the show tackles these pretty big social issues um it does them in this really agile way i think that was the term the the writer used it it has agility right so it doesn't like like build up to a very special moment and spend the whole episode talking about police brutality or, or the way you know uh police stop black people more than white people it's like a minor plot point and then it moves on and the the story of these people is what you pay attention to um and that's something i admire at the show is that it can flick at these social issues in really smart ways but doesn't become like um overly preoccupied it's like the way that people think about them in their real lives is the way that that the people on the show talk about it excellent i love the first season so we'll get around to it so i've been reading a book which I guess it's not double X E, but you know, girls are wide and varied and can be interested in many, many different things, which is this Nick Bilton book called American Kingpin, The Epic Hunt for the Criminal Mastermind Behind the Silk Road, which is about Ross Albright, the kid who founded the Silk Road. And he's written, I've listened to Nick Bilton. It's I totally recommend it as a summer read. I listened to Nick Bilton talk about how he wrote it, and he wrote it as kind of like a thriller, like a he studied a lot of sort of um like like the form of the kind of the mystery and the thriller and there's these very short chapters and it's this like hunt for Ross and then it's just Ross's life and he's such an interesting kid and he just feels like such a kid of the moment and Silk Road is just like you can't even believe such a thing existed for so long where you just like log on buy drugs have them delivered to your house that's what the Silk Road is it was just in this in the dark web and uh, you really could do exactly what I just said you would just like use Bitcoin so it wasn't traceable to you buy something and then you'd have drugs delivered to your house and it was one wonderful and terrible. And this book does, it's it's just like a really fast read. So it's called American Kingpin. And it's really, really great. Cool. Well, yeah, it's cool. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks to our producer, Virlyn Williams, who is wonderful as always. Thanks to our wonderful intern, Daniel Schrader. Listeners, you can go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash doublexgabfest, and let us know what you think of the show and what we should talk about. But also you can just tweet at us. We are much more active on our own Twitter feed. So at Noreen Malone, at Hannah Rosen, at June Thomas, pretty straightforward. And we would love to hear your views. For Noreen, I'm Hannah. For the Double X Gab Fest, we will talk to you in a couple of weeks.